Would you please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8? And we'll be focusing on verses 31 to the end of the chapter, but we'll start in verse 48. So as you turn there, let me uh, make some, uh, some comments about uh, uh, the bulletin. So in, uh, in, in, your, well, in the bulletin that you receive on your way in, you have uh, these sermon notes. So it's my aim to, uh, to, have, to produce this by Wednesday. It doesn't always work out that way. Uh, the latest Thursday, to which then I, uh, I email them to Marissa, then she'll put it together, and then this is what you have on Sunday mornings. Uh, the reason I bring this up and the reason why we're picking it up in verse 48 um, is because this bulletin is not accurate, <laughs> um, and that's totally my fault. I, there's uh, nothing that Marissa did or anybody else did. This is, uh, this is what I gave. This is what I turned in. But uh, as of this morning, this is totally different. Uh, so really, we're starting out with point number three. So if you're following along in this note, uh, we're actually, maybe, maybe it's better if you don't follow along with this. Uh, but actually starting in uh, God of truth, which is the last point, and then going back to Point number one, slaves to sin and liberated by truth, and then concluding with point number two, which is the truth of your descent. So uh, that sounds like a convoluted mess in my mind, in my brain. It's, it feels like a convoluted mess, uh, but hopefully it doesn't come out that way this morning. So I just kind of uh, felt led to change the things a uh, little, not, not a little bit, but made things <laughs> drastically different. So hopefully you can follow along and just uh, uh, we'll read the passage. We'll start at verse 48, read to the end of the chapter, and kind of work our way backwards. And uh, well, we'll read the passage, pray, then we'll proceed with the sermon. And as we're praying, pray for me, because uh, again, this is, seems like a convoluted mess in my mind. Real feel really distracted. Uh, but hopefully you'll be encouraged this morning through God's Word. Uh, at the end of the day, this is... This is insufficient. This is, uh, this, is, this is fallible. This is the work of man. Uh, but the, the word of God is what's infallible, and this is what is sufficient. And so hopefully you'll be encouraged by what the word says and not by what uh, my notes say. So, so picking up in verse 48 of John chapter 8, it says, The Jews answered him, answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as a prophet, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
The Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Speak to us concerning the person of Jesus Christ and what he came to do. Speak to us concerning the truth. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive your word, despite how I communicate this morning and despite the, uh, uh, the messiness of uh, my points. May your word speak to us loud and clear this morning so that we may be encouraged, so that we may be rebuked if there's, if there's need for rebuke. That your word would speak correction if we need correction. But ultimately that your word would give us what we need so that we may grow into greater and greater maturity in the faith. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this conversation is still happening in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. So we haven't left that event yet. It's for the past three sermons, it's been a dialogue during this particular festival. And so last week, we took a look at Jesus' words where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so after making several more statements, it tells us at the end of verse 30 in chapter 8 that as Jesus was saying these things or speaking these words, many believed in him. And so Jesus then directs his attention to those who believed in him. Jesus supernaturally know who these individuals were, so he speaks to them, and this is, these are the, the Jews, these are the crowds that he's speaking to uh, here in verse 48. And at this point, the tension has begun to build because they are, now they, they sort of, uh, not sort of, but they, they've resorted to, to name-calling, right? After many statements that Jesus makes that they find offensive, now they they start name-calling. They say, Jesus, you are a, a Samaritan. In other words, you're just a half-breed. And we know, and surely by this time, people would have heard of Jesus uh, interacting with the Samaritans way back in chapter 4 when we went through that, and Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman and staying among the Samaritans and ministering to them and preaching the gospel to them. And so when they say that Jesus is a Samaritan, they're saying that he's a, a traitor to the Jewish culture and the Jewish traditions. And not only that, but they're saying, Jesus, you are the one who has a demon. So in other words, you are a son of the devil. So pretty, pretty, pretty bad statements that they make concerning Jesus. Hence why Jesus says that they, they are dishonoring him. And as we'll see later, this proves even further that these individuals, that these so-called believers were not actual followers of Jesus Christ, that they were not actually coming from the line of Abraham. And we'll spend a little bit of time with Abraham and just very soon. Now, Jesus, Jesus says that whoever, 
If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is always speaking the truth. That's what he says. Back in 34, if you abide in my word, you, will, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that truth, if anyone keeps, he will never see death, to which the crowds seem to have taken literally. Well, how is that even possible? Because everybody dies. Abraham died, the prophets died. But they're not understanding that Jesus is speaking about a different kind of death, an eternal death, or what Revelation calls a second death. In Revelation 2.10, it tells us, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And this is a word speaking to the churches that are enduring persecution. It says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Then in verse 8 of chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Everyone without exception will experience the first death, that is the death of the body. But not everyone will experience this second death that Revelation speaks about. And a, a second death that is coming. And salvation is received only by hearing and keeping, through, and keeping the words of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And just as their forefather Abraham did. And so, this is the death that Jesus is talking about. And this is the truth that he speaks to, that he's warning that there is a second death that is coming. And the only way to escape it is to abide in the words of Jesus Christ, which are words of truth. And then Jesus, going on a little further, and Abraham is an important figure in this passage. But he essentially makes the claim that he is greater than Abraham, which is a pretty bold statement. Because to the Jews, well, Abraham was a pretty important figure, not only in Jewish culture and traditions and history, but also to the faith. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw that day and was glad. And the Jews are saying, well, how is it that, Jesus, that, that Abraham saw your day? Because you didn't live back then, Jesus. But in fact, Jesus did. Because what did John 1 tell us? That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that he was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is making a claim to deity that Jesus was, in a sense, there with Abraham. And speaking, I think, particularly with the offering of Isaac, right? when God commanded uh, Abraham to sacrifice his son as a, t as a proving of his faith. And then moments before, God stopped him and then provided a ram stuck in the thicket as a sacrifice. And that was meant to point to something, that something that a greater sacrifice would come, that God is the one who means to provide the sacrifice that all of us need. And so Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, tells us, and I think in this passage what Jesus is telling us, that, Je that Abraham saw that. He saw the greater fulfillment that was coming. He saw a glimpse of the Lord's provision in that moment 
as he was about to sacrifice his son on the altar. So Jesus, Jesus is the sacrifice, the greater sacrifice given unto us for the remission of our sins. And Jesus says that I was there and that Abraham saw a glimpse of it and he rejoiced and he was glad. So again, making a claim to deity, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. But the only one who ever identifies himself as I am is God, the God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush when Moses says, when the people ask me, who is this God who comes to deliver him from slavery in Egypt? Who do I say he is? What do I call you? And God says, I am. You tell them that I am has come to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. So in the same way, Jesus says that I am has come to deliver God's people from bondage and slavery to sin and death. And the Jews, they understood this. They understood Jesus in that way, and hence why they took up stones to try to stone him to death. But Jesus' deity is what grounds the truth of his words. If Jesus is not God, then we have no reason to believe Jesus. But Jesus is always speaking the truth, and he performs many signs upon many signs, not just for the sake of healing people who need healing, but for the sake of getting people to understand that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, that he comes from God. That is why he says in the Gospels that if you don't believe my words, at least believe the works, so that you may know that I am he and that God sent me. But the fact that Jesus is God, right, that is what grounds the truth of his words. That is why his truth liberate us from sin and death. And so if we do not believe that Jesus is God, that we have no means of salvation, then his words don't matter all that much. And that is why, because Jesus is God, we must hang on every single word that proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus. We have to abide in his words. We have to trust in his words. We have to read his words. We have to study his words because his words are a matter of life and death. And so we aim to preach the gospel to those who don't believe in Jesus and to those who have never heard of Jesus before because Jesus' words matter a great deal because he is the living God made flesh. And so then, working, again, working backwards, the truth of God is what liberates us from sin and death. It is his truth that liberates us. So again, Jesus, directing his attention to the Jews who supposedly believed in him, tells them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth that he speaks because he is God, and he speaks no other words than the words of God. Man is not saved by his works, nor is man saved by the works of someone else. Man is not even saved by the works of Jesus apart from faith. You have to believe in Jesus in order for the work of Jesus Christ to be applied to you. But those who believed in Jesus and here in the passage, in this context, on account of his words, have been, have been riding on the faith of their forefathers, specifically 
their forefather Abraham. And because Abraham was the father of the entire Jewish nation, and because he was the inheritor of great promises made to him by God, well then, the crowds considered themselves along the line of Abraham, that they considered themselves legitimate inheritors of God's blessing, that there is no way that they could ever not be inheritors of God's blessings. Even though they have been enslaved, they say that we have never been enslaved to anyone, how will you say that you will become free? But we know that they've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and even after that, they've been, in, they've been subjected to other foreign nations, yet they still considered themselves as the people who are truly free because they are coming from the line of Abraham, because they've got these incredible promises that have been passed down from Abraham and to them, and that they are the ones who are going to inherit the incredible blessings and the rewards of God. So Abraham is an important figure, so it's important that we spend a little bit of time with Abraham. Now, one of the most important passages concerning Abraham is found in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verse 1, it tells us, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his widgets are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Then in verse 9 of Romans 4, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. There in Romans 2.28, it tells us, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. For Abraham was not saved by his works, but Abraham, specifically circumcision, but Abraham was saved by his faith in the Lord and the promises of God. In Romans 4, it tells us, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Right? He didn't live to see the fulfillment of those promises, but he believed that those promises would come to pass. And the fact that you are all here this morning, followers and believers of Jesus Christ, shows that the promises made to Abraham have been realized, and they continue to be realized, because he has indeed become the father of many nations through faith in Jesus Christ. So that a Jew is not merely one who is hourly, but a Jew is one who is inward, that their heart has been circumcised through faith in Jesus Christ. So man is saved, man is delivered from his bondage to sin and slavery through believing in the words of Jesus Christ, believing in the words of God. Jesus says, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. 
mean that his, that his life is characterized by sin, without remorse, without regrets, without repentance, without any regards towards God. Ephesians 2, verse 1, tells us, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And how is a slave to sin set free? Ephesians 2 also tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith. And Romans 10 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? We are not saved by our works. We're saved by the words of Jesus Christ. When we believe in his words, when we trust in his words, when we abide in his words. That is the truth that sets us free. That Jesus Christ came to earth as the son of God who was also fully man died on the cross for the sins of his people so that we who were once enslaved to sin, enslaved to the passions of our flesh, the ones who were once condemned criminals on our way to the eternal wrath of God, Jesus saved by paying the penalty for our sins. And so through our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. We're declared innocent. We're declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. Mark 3.27 describes Jesus as one who comes to bind the strong man. That once he has bound the strong man, then he, then he plunders his goods. Jesus is that strong man who binds the devil. And it says, if anyone would want to be set free, then come and follow me to deliverance. Abide in my words and you will be truly my disciples and you will be set free. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And God has spoken to us through the divine Son who is Jesus Christ. That means that we must abide in the truth of his words. If God has spoken to us through his Son, if God continues to speak to us through his word, if truth is in the person of Jesus Christ who is the revelation of God and the only means of our salvation, then we would do well to heed the words of Jesus Christ and to abide in his words. To abide in his words means that your life is governed by his word, that your life is sustained by his word, and that you follow his word. As Christians, we have to believe in the sufficiency of God's word. The sufficiency of God's word means that the, that the word of God contains all that we need to know concerning how to be reconciled with God. The sufficiency of the scriptures does not mean that the Bible tells us everything that there is to, that we need to know about everything, but it tells us everything that we need to know that is of eternal consequence and significance. It means that the Bible tells us everything that we need to know in order to live a life that is pleasing unto God. An instruction manual right, will help you to put something together, say like an entertainment center. It's not going to tell you how to put together something else, but only that one thing. And it's intended to be sufficient in that it tells you everything that you need to know in order to put or to build this entertainment center together. Now, many of you know from experience that, that these manuals are less than helpful at times. Maybe there's errors, maybe there's mistakes, maybe there's, uh, the pictures are not very good. So in that sense, the manual is insufficient because there's information that's missing or it's not very clear, but we can trust in the sufficiency of God's word because God is the one who wrote it. And he 
has thought of everything, and he has told us everything that we need to know. Now, there may be times when we wish or desire that it told us something that we want to know that we may not directly find in the Scriptures. Say, should I make this move? Should I do this thing? Should I take this job? And so on and so forth. And for those things, why we, we pray for wisdom, which James says tells us that, that God gives it liberally to those who ask. Right, but the Bible doesn't give us the answer to every question that we might have, but the Bible is sufficient in that it tells us everything that we need to know concerning God and man and Christ, how to be reconciled and how to live a life pleasing to God. Now, you may believe that in your head, but ask yourself, do you believe that practically? When it comes to going back to manuals, right, sometimes, particularly men, they don't look at the manuals. Like, oh, we don't need the manual. Just toss it and just put it together on our own, right, until we come to realize that we've made a mess so we just don't understand what we're doing, so we go back to the manual. But man or woman alike, we all have a disregard. We have a tendency to disregard God's manual. Sometimes it might be because we think we already know the, all the answers. And sometimes, if we're honest, it might be because you know what the answer is. You know that it's in the Word, but you just don't want to listen because it's not the answer that you want. But friends, you cannot neglect the Word of God. You can't neglect abiding in the words of Jesus Christ. Truth matters, right? We, are created, we have been created to value truth. We hate being lied to. We want people to be honest with us, even if the, if honest, if the truth hurts. And not everything that Jesus says, every truth that Jesus speaks, is easy to swallow. But we can trust, because God wrote the Scriptures, that every word that it contains is good for you. Even if initially it hurts, ultimately it is for your good. And so it is incredibly important that we heed Jesus' word, and who says to abide in his word, and then you will truly be my disciples. We can't neglect the word of God. We can't neglect God's manual. This is God's manual for us. It is God's word, God's word that sustains you, that helps you, that brings correction, that brings encouragement, and even gives wisdom. Disciples of Jesus abide in the words of Jesus, and this is what Jesus is trying to get at with those who claim to believe in him. Jesus is always pressing a little deeper to really be able to tell what is your faith really like. Are you truly following me? Are you truly abiding in my words? Because if you truly are, then you're not just going to accept the things that are easy for, for you to swallow, and you're also going to accept the things that are hard to swallow as well. But again, ultimately, those words are good for you. The truth of God is what liberates you from sin and death. And then, lastly, the truth is what determines your descent or your lineage. So continuing in his conversation with those who claim to believe in him, Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, that is by the flesh, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answer him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Again, these are those are hard truths. Jesus tells them that you are of the devil. But it's words that they needed to hear before they can be saved. You need to know the bad news before you can understand and really grasp and really rejoice over the good news. Now, it tells us, right, that these particular, this, this crowd, these Jews, they believed in him. It tells us in verse 31. Now, believing doesn't always translate to genuine converting faith. One of the, this is kind of the limitations of the English language, and even in the Greek language of the New Testament, there's limitations because there is no word really to, to describe the different levels of faith, whether a faith is genuine or a faith is fickle. And, and not genuine faith. But we find out very quickly as we read through the narrative that the kind of faith that, these, that the crowds display or show wasn't the right kind of faith. They didn't truly believe in Jesus. It was a spurious, it was a, a fickle faith. True and genuine faith endures to the very end. And Jesus knew that this was not the kind of faith that this crowd had. The only way to adequately, adequately explain why they believed in him and yet wanted to kill him was that their faith was fickle. Maybe at first they didn't have any intention to kill Jesus, but by the time that Jesus confronts them and knows what their faith is actually like and tells them that you are sinners who need freedom, at that point they've come to have these murderous intentions. Because they're offspring of Abraham. They're truly free. They're not enslaved to anyone. Jesus makes clear, if Abraham was their father, then Jesus' Jesus's words would have settled in their hearts. He says, my words find no place in you. That means that there, there's no room in their heart for the word of God to settle. There's, they won't even allow any room for the word of God to settle in their hearts. They have their own way, they have their own perception, they have their own worldview, they have their own way of thinking about things. Not only that, but they would be doing the works of Abraham instead of intending to kill Jesus if Abraham was truly their father. 
Abraham believed in God. Abraham trusted in God. Abraham followed God, and he put his hope in God. Anyone who is a son or daughter of Abraham will likewise believe in God, trust in God, follow God, and put their hope in God. Anyone who does these works have Abraham as their father and Sarah as their mother. And Paul says it like this in Galatians 4, 4.22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is in Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Then in verse 28, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. If you believe in, and if you trust in, if you follow, if you put your hope in God, then you are a child of freedom. You are a child of promise, an inheritor of the blessings of Abraham through God. And Jesus says that as the Son of God, who dwells in the house of God, that he has the authority to set the slaves free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And not only that, but that son or daughter who has been set free is then allowed to live permanently in the house of God. That they will remain forever with Christ. And that freedom also makes you a sibling to Jesus. Romans 8.21 tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. By the fickle faith of the crowd, they claim to have God as their father. But then that would make them the siblings of Jesus. And if that was the case, then they would love Jesus as, as a sibling. But they don't. Instead, they want to kill him. Reminds me of the, the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was a beloved son of his family, but it was also an arrogant, probably an even an obnoxiously arrogant young man. But how much do you have to hate your brother to strip him of his clothes, throw him in a ditch, and then sell him off to be a slave in Egypt? And that wasn't even their first intention. The first intention was actually to kill him until Reuben stepped in and came up with a different plan. Not only that, but then to keep up the lie, to tell the father that your son is dead, and to keep that lie going for years and years and years. I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to do that to them? And here are the Jews. Here are the people. Here are the crowds who claim to believe in Jesus, and yet at the same time they want to kill him. People who claim they have God as their father. That's not a work of God. If you are truly an offspring of Abraham, if you are truly coming from God, then you would love the son. A son or daughter of Abraham will always do the works of Abraham, and thereby showing the true nature of their faith. Now, while the people are claiming to believe in Jesus, oh, who, sorry, who claim to say that God is their father, Jesus has different words. He says, no, God is not your father, but the devil is your father. Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And Jesus says that they are not of God, but instead that they are of the devil. The devil is characterized by lies. He's the father of lies. And lying was the first of his works, what we read about back in Genesis chapter 3. 
right, when he twisted the truth of God's word and lied to Adam and Eve and tempted them to sin against God. The scriptures describe to us the devil as one who is a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but he's not seeking to devour people at the edge of a sword, but he's seeking to devour people through words. Christians in the West tend to think that, that the devil is not really at work or not as much as in other places and other, uh, around the world where we read of accounts of supernatural occurrences and even uh, possessions, right? And we read about those things in the Gospels. But the devil wants you to believe that he's not doing much at all. He wants you to believe that here in our context, in our, here in the West, that the devil is not, it's just mostly silent. He wants you to believe that because the devil is not showy. Rather, he likes to work in secret. The supernatural displays of his work, that's just plan B. Plan A of the devil is to deceive people through words, to lie to them, to present these these beautiful-looking lies that masquerade as truth. And if that is plan A, then plan A is working really, really, really well in our context. Every mutation of the gospel from, from universalism to the health and prosperity gospel the denial of key biblical doctrines and Christian ethics, they all find their origin in the devil because they are all lies and a twisting of God's truth. And the devil is the father of lies, and he's good at lying. He's good at making the truth. He's, making, he's good at making lies look like truth. The devil will tell you anything, anything to draw you further and further away from Christ. He will tell you that you need to perform better. He'll tell you that there are several different ways to heaven. He'll tell you that you just, that that Jesus Christ died for your sins and there's nothing else for you to do. That it doesn't matter how you live your life now because ultimately God is a God of love and that everybody is going to find their way to God at some point or other. Jesus is not fully God, and that's okay. You can still have salvation. Jesus is not fully man. That's okay. You can still have salvation. There's no such thing as hell. Right? That's a lie of the devil. In fact, I think it was just a week ago, the New York Times had, a, had an article in his newspaper about a, a theologian from Notre Dame writing about how, uh, writing a, a condescending article towards towards any believer, towards any Christian who believes in the doctrine of hell. But if hell is not real, then why are we even here? Then what exactly is Jesus saving us from? These are all lies of the devil. And he's good at lying. I mean, he's been lying from the very beginning. You and I have been on the earth for this much, for just a little bit of time. The devil has been around for a long time. He knows how you work, he knows how you think, he knows what he needs to say in order to get you to believe things that are not true. And that is why you have to immerse yourself in the truth of the scriptures. In certain financial regions of the country, $100,000 
worth of counterfeit money is seized every single month, every month. And it's a job of the Secret Service to not only find counterfeit money, but also to stop it from circulating around the country. Now, embedded in each bill are certain security features that, make, that are almost impossible to replicate. So, for example, there are watermark images imprinted in, in some of the bills that are actually imprinted in the fibers of the bill. Another security feature is that there are certain images on some of the bills that, uh, with, that you, that's, uh, that's imprinted with a special ink so that if you hold it a certain way, the image changes. Also, on, on the uh, $100 bill, there's also what's known as microprinting. So that it's printing that you can't see with the naked eye, but you have to take a magnifying glass. So if you take the $100 bill and you look at uh, Ben Franklin's lapel, you'll see the words United States of America. Right? Those are security features that are difficult, almost impossible to replicate, but they're there so the Secret Service will know that this is genuine currency. And, it's a, it's, and the Secret Service is trained on how to detect these, these security features. They're not trained on how to detect every variation of counterfeit money, but they're focused on the one genuine bill. So how do you protect yourself from the lies of the devil, from every lie that's out there in the world? By immersing yourself in the truths of the scriptures. You have to know the truth. Because truth matters. Right? Doctrine matters. Theology matters. It is a life, it's a matter of life and death. It really is. You may not consider yourself a theologian, but every time you make a, if you say that Jesus is God, well, then you're doing theology. Jesus is Lord, that's theology. Jesus is fully man, that is theology. Jesus came to die for our sins, that's theology. You're making a statement, a truthful statement about God. That's doctrine. In Ephesians 4, I have to read this. Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ is giving to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Truth matters because it is a matter of life and death. Teachers study the subject that they teach. Doctors study the human body. Christians study the scriptures because the truth matters. It matters a lot. It matters a great deal. I mean, just think of what the devil did to Jesus in the wilderness. He tempted the Lord Jesus using scripture, twisting the scripture, but he used scriptures. So I would say that we must know the scriptures better than the devil. We have to be immersed in the scriptures. Otherwise, it will be easy. We make ourselves easy targets to be swayed by every wind of doctrine, every lie that's out there in the world. So it is important. It is vital to our lives. It is vital for our endurance until the very end for us to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Be diligent students of the Word of God. Not only reading it, not only studying it, but also doing it, practicing it. Because this is what's saving your life. This is what's going to get you to the very end. 
And so it is incredibly, incredibly important. So ask yourself, do you, cons- do you consider yourself a student of the scriptures? Are you immersing yourself in the word? Are you studying the word with others? And I'm not going to tell you how often you should be in the word. But just ask yourself, do you consider yourself a person who is immersed in the scriptures, in the truths of God's word? And ask yourself, does, do you see this as a matter of life and death? Truth matters. It matters a great deal. And it is this truth that it saves us. Right, this is what sets the word of God apart from every other book that's written in the course of history. There's a lot of great books that have been written and continue to be written. There's, there's a lot of philosophy. There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of wisdom and practical insight. Yes, those books are great. They might be wonderful. But nothing compares to the word of God. Because only the word of God contains the words of eternal life. Because this contains the word of eternal life, then we have to, we have to be immersed in the words of eternal life. Because other books might give us practical knowledge, but this gives us wisdom unto salvation. So immerse yourself in the word of God. It is living and it is active. Father, we thank you because you have given us your word so that we may be set free from sin, from death, and even from the devil. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who love your word, who exude your word. May we be like the psalmist in Psalm 1, meditating on your word day and night. That person is compared to a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and it leaves, its leaves do not wither and all that he does, he prospers. God, make that psalm real in our hearts, in our personal lives, Lord, as a church. Lord, make that real to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us life through your word, specifically through the divine word who is Jesus Christ. And may we never grow tired of being students of your divine word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.